Welcome to Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. My name is Krista Lundberg. And my name is Valentina Mann. And today we are talking to Dr. Sarah Miglietti. Dr. Miglietti is currently Senior Lecturer in Cultural and Intellectual History at the Warburg Institute in London. Sarah was educated in Italy, France and the UK and taught for three years at Johns Hopkins University in the United States before joining the Warburg Institute in 2018. She works on European intellectual history in the early modern period, particularly the history of philosophy, book history and environmental humanities. Dr. Miglietti, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, as usual on this podcast, we will start with some questions about your intellectual biography. When and how did you come to the study of intellectual history? And when did you realize that you wanted to have an academic career? Well, when I was 18 years old, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to study philosophy at the Scuola Normale Superiore in Pisa, in Italy. And that's a very special school because from year one, you're plunged into a research environment. You're encouraged to start doing your own original research, and uh, that's very unusual compared to other universities. So I quickly realized that um, research was something that I deeply enjoyed. Apparently, I was also good at. Um, so from there, I decided to stay on for a PhD, and then one thing led to another. And I feel really privileged today to be able to do what I love for a living. In terms of how I came to intellectual history, I actually started out as a historian of philosophy in the classic sense. So I was studying the works of great thinkers from the past. I was trying to understand how their philosophies developed through an engagement with um, earlier thinkers. But then I gradually became more and more interested in restaging philosophical ideas in their wider contexts and also in understanding how these ideas belonged in a much larger intellectual climate. And so today I'm much less interested in determining, for instance, whether a particular philosopher was being original or forward-looking uh, in his or her writings. Um, more interested, rather, in understanding how ideas came about and how they fit with the cultural debates of the time. Over the course of the last few years, you have been based in various countries and various different departments, from philosophy to Renaissance studies to French studies, before becoming senior lecturer in cultural and intellectual history. How important, if at all, is disciplinary identity to you? Well, as you said, I've lived and worked in many different countries, and different countries have different academic traditions, a different sense of disciplinary identities and boundaries. Um, so to give you an example, what counts as philosophy in the U.S. Um, is very different from what um, is understood as philosophy in Italy, for instance. Um, the American tradition is very analytical. It's about unpacking texts and um, discussing them as if their authors were our contemporaries, in a sense. Um, whereas the uh, Italian tradition is much more historical. Um, so when I first moved from Italy to the U.S., I had a bit of a culture shock in that respect. Um, my own approach is at the same time very textual and very historical. And when I was in the US, I ended up working in a modern languages department, um, which I found to be very welcoming to my um, research methodology. Uh, on the whole, I'm not very much attached to the idea of uh, disciplines per se. Um, as someone who works on the Renaissance, I am very aware that disciplinary boundaries were defined in a different way at the time uh, from what they are today. 
they were also arguably less important than they are today uh, in, in a certain sense. Uh, many of the thinkers on whom I've been working were active in more than one field, um, say medicine, ethics, and theology, for instance. Um, and these fields were perceived to have connections that don't necessarily make a lot of sense uh, to us today. Um, so in order to study these thinkers properly, one has to familiarize oneself with very different discursive fields. Um, and I guess that's one of the reasons why interdisciplinary work is so important these days, uh, particularly in the field of Renaissance studies. You're involved in various collaborative networks. Uh, you've edited several special issues of journals and organized conferences and panels. How important do you consider collaborative projects to be in the field of intellectual history? And do you think that there is a trend towards more coordinated efforts? Yes, definitely. I think there is a growing sense that many of the most important projects at the moment cannot be um, dealt with by a single individual. Uh, they really need to um, be carried out by a group of people working together, bringing together different um, methodologies and skills. Um, of course, there are now uh, funding opportunities uh, to create research networks, even on an international scale, uh, to carry out these projects much more collaboratively. Um, and I think it's also one of the most fun components of our work, I guess, because uh, when you're working in isolation, it is less stimulating um, uh, than if you're working in a network of people. Um, and I can testify to that because many of my projects actually were born in collaborative uh, environments and they couldn't have existed without them. In your research, you often return to the 16th century jurist and philosopher Jean Baudin. Could you briefly introduce us to Baudin? What were the circumstances of his philosophical production? What kinds of questions was he interested in? Yes, well, Baudin lived in France in the 16th century. He was born around 1530 and he died in 1596. So much of his adult life coincides with the period that is known today as the French Wars of Religion. These are the civil wars that shattered France in the second half of the 16th century, opposing Catholics and Huguenots. So that was a dramatic period, and one really can feel that uh, in reading Boudin's writings. One of his main concerns was to find a way out of the current crisis, and this is how he came to develop his famous theory of absolute sovereignty, which is probably his best-known and most enduring legacy today. But he was not just a political thinker. Uh, it would be reductive to study him only uh, for his political ideas. In his books, he tackled a much broader range of questions and problems from witchcraft to history writing and the question of religious tolerance. Um, and what I found fascinating with him is how he was able to establish meaningful connections between uh, these different facets of reality without necessarily constructing a philosophical system in the modern sense of the word. Your research has illuminated these many different aspects of Baudin's thought by engagement with early modern readers of his books. To give one example, you have examined marginal annotations in a large number of copies of Baudin's book, Method for the Easy Knowledge of History. Is there anything about the way that early modern readers reacted to Baudin that you found particularly surprising or that influenced your approach to his thought? Yes, that was a fascinating project. I examined about uh, 80 extant copies out of the uh, 700 plus uh, that are still extant today. And uh, one of the first thing I noticed and I found interesting is the variety of interests that um, early modern readers displayed uh, in reading Boudin's Methodus. Um, unlike many of us today, they really uh, show uh, that they're not just reading Boudin for his political ideas. 
Um, so the Methodus is a very uh, complex text. Um, the first three chapters are about uh, ways of reading history, uh, and they give very practical advice as to how uh, to take notes, for instance, or produce commonplace books, um, whereas the following uh, six books are more about political and uh, philosophical questions. And the interesting thing is that depending on the institutional context, for instance, in which the Methodus was being read, readers tended to focus on different aspects. Uh, for instance, in England, there is evidence that the book was being read and used as a textbook in university, and so therefore the students were really focusing on the first three pedagogical chapters, whereas continental readers engaged more uh, broadly with the philosophical and political questions of the following chapters. So I guess that we can learn a lot from studying these selective reading strategies. Um, the other thing that I found really interesting uh, was to work on expurgated copies. And I realized that people who were concerned with the uh, theological or philosophical mistakes contained in the work um, were not in agreement as to what these mistakes were. So even Roman censors that we tend to see as a sort of uh, cohesive interpretive community were actually in great disagreement um, as to what was wrong with Baudin's Methodus and expurgated it in very different ways. You have also translated one of Baudin's books into Italian, and you are currently assisting Mario Turchetti with preparing a critical edition of the last two books of Baudin's Six Books of the Commonwealth. This edition will present two versions of the text, Baudin's original French and his own Latin translation. Could you tell us about your aims with these translations and editions? Yes, well, these were two different projects. So with the uh, with my project on the Methodus, what I wanted to do was to prepare a new Italian translation of the work that was based not just on the uh, second revised edition of the work, but on a genetic text. So Boudin first published the work in 1566 and then revised the text, adding uh, many passages, omitting some, changing others. Um, and this revised edition came out in 1572, so right in the middle of one of the most dramatic phases of the Wars of Religion. Um, and I was interested in seeing how these textual changes could shed light on his intellectual development uh, during this very dramatic period. So my translation was different from the previous one in that way, uh, that um, it took into account the changes in the text. And I guess that for me, one of the challenging aspects was how much information to put in the critical apparatus. I think when you are preparing a translation or a critical edition, uh, the problem is that you end up with a huge amount of material that cannot possibly be incorporated in the final product, which is a good thing in a sense, because it then leads to other projects. And that's exactly what uh, happened with my collaborative work with Mario Turchetti for the Bilingual Republic. Uh, so for this particular project, we don't have to really come up with a translation because Baudin himself uh, took care of it. He first wrote the text in 1576 uh, in French, and then 10 years later in 1586, he published published a Latin self-translation of the work. And so in this case for us, it is a matter of making um, the uh, textual additions visible to the reader, not explaining why they came about, but uh, making them visible for the reader's own original um, analysis. Of course, the problem is that many readers today won't have the Latin to read the Latin editions autonomously. So one thing that we are doing is that we are back translating into French, of course, modern French, not Boudinian French, uh, all the editions that were included in the second 1586 edition. Um, and that is one thing that, of course, takes up much of our time. 
You also have a broader interest in the phenomenon of early modern self-translation, which will be the subject of your forthcoming book, Self-Translation in Renaissance France, Writing Bilingually from Calvin to Descartes. Can you tell us a bit about this project? My interest in self-translation originated in my work with Mario Turchetti uh, on the uh, Bilingual Republique. There was a lot of material that I was accumulating for this project that couldn't possibly have been incorporated in the critical apparatus uh, of our edition. Um, and from there, I also started to realize that Baudin was far from unique in the period as a self-translator. So I started thinking of a new project that is now under contract with Ravledge um, on philosophical and scientific self-translation, looking at the work of people like Baudin who uh, translated some of their works either from Latin into French or from French into Latin. This was extremely widespread practice in the period, not just among literary authors, such as Joachim Dubélet, for instance, who were active uh, bilingually as poets and sometimes translated their poetry uh, from one language into the other. Um, it was extremely widespread also among philosophers um, and physicians and, and scientists in, in various areas. So with my book, I am trying to give the first comprehensive overview of the activity of these non-literary self-translators, also to start seeing, if possible, patterns in, in their activities and the institutional context or social context in which they were active. Did they more often start out in... Um, a vernacular and then translate into Latin or the other way around? So this is one of the interesting things that one starts seeing when uh, one starts looking at patterns rather than at self-translators in isolation. I quickly realized that um, the uh, directionality of the self-translation, so whether uh, people started out in French and then translated into Latin or the other way around, changed in the period that I'm considering. So my book starts in the 1530s, 1540s, and then looks at the development of this practice up to the 1630s, so about a century. And um, what I could see is that initially the uh, translators were operating mostly from Latin into French, so they were self-vernacularizing in a sense. But but increasingly from the 1570s onwards, uh, you see uh, a much more complex directionality. You start seeing people who uh, start out in French uh, and then translate into Latin, probably for a more international audience. Does this shift entail a change in the understanding of translation? Or did the phenomenon of self-translation as a whole already represent a different understanding of translation? So, for example... How did self-translation compare to translating ancient texts into vernacular languages or into early modern Latin? Well, this is one of my research questions. Um, I don't feel that I can satisfactorily answer this question now, uh, but it's definitely interesting to see how um, Latin, for instance, was considered a living language by these authors and how Latin itself evolved through the practice of self-translation. I guess... One of the things that I'm interested in looking at is uh, what kind of understanding of uh, what they were doing these self-translators had. Um, and so whether they had a sense that um, their condition as the authors of the works that they were translating gave them a special privilege, for instance, to change these works. That's definitely something that I see a lot in my uh, corpus, um, that self-translators take liberties that normal translators probably wouldn't have taken, not particularly um, with respect to um, non-literary works, uh, where there was an expectation that the translation would be as faithful as possible to the original. 
Over the last few years, you have also developed an interest in climate theory in the early modern period, and now have a book in progress on this topic entitled The Empire of Climate, Mastering Environmental Influence in Early Modern Europe and the Colonial Atlantic. Could you tell us about your interest in this topic and how you came to this project? Yes, yeah, so the book explores this belief in the power of climate to shape our bodies, minds and characters. So that's the idea, for instance, that a hot climate will make you weak uh, and lazy, uh, while a cold climate will make you rough and very active. And this is a very old tradition. Uh, we can trace it all the way back to classical antiquity with Hippocrates and Aristotle. Uh, but it became especially popular in the early modern period. Um, and so the whole project actually started from Boudin, once again, uh, because he was probably one of the most important climate theorists uh, in the 16th century. Um, and initially, I was interested in exploring the reception of Boudin's climate theory in the 17th century. We know that Montesquieu in the 18th century will pick up on some of these ideas, but we don't really know at the moment what happened to climate theory in the 17th century. Uh, so it was a classic reception uh, studies project in a sense uh, when I first started working on it. And then it turned into something very different um, because I uh, quickly realized that uh, the most interesting sites where climate theory was being debated uh, in the period were not necessarily theoretical works by philosophers, but rather texts that were steeped in very practical contexts. Uh, handbooks on healthy living, for instance, uh, guidelines for colonial settlement in the Americas, um, scientific papers discussing new technologies for environmental engineering, uh, and so forth. And so I became more interested in understanding these connections between theories and practices in the period as relates to climate. In a book you recently edited with John Morgan, you discussed the importance of looking at the interactions between, on the one hand, theories of climate, and on the other, practices that altered the natural landscape in the service of social and uh, political concerns and projects, such as land enclosures and drainage systems. How does bringing practice and theory together enrich our understanding of climate in the early modern period? And what can intellectual climate history specifically offer us as an approach? Yes, well, that book that you just mentioned, uh, Governing the Environment in the Early Modern World, um, came out in 2017 with Routledge, uh, and it is the result of a collaborative project that um, John and I um, initially mounted as a uh, conference that took place uh, at the University of Warwick in 2015. And we realized that it was high time that intellectual historians and social and environmental historians really started to talk uh, to one another um, with respect to the question of climate and environment in the early modern period. It is important for us to see how practical projects of environmental engineering, for instance, um, drainage projects in the south of France or projects for river control in the north of England, were motivated not just by economic or political reasons, uh, but by a theoretical understanding of how um, environments can influence human societies in very concrete ways, including uh, the physical and moral well-being of uh, the people living in those environments. And so very interesting things emerged uh, from that project and um, the book that is now available. Did early modern people worry about the climate or the environment in general? Was it perceived as a threat? Yes, uh, in, in more than one way, I would say. So on, on the one hand, there were concerns um, uh, for how the climate might influence uh, one's character in uh, unwanted ways. 
Uh, and there were lots of strategies that early modern people developed to cope with these uh, unwanted environmental influences. And these ranged from um, dietetic strategies uh, to geographical displacement or direct environmental engineering. But another way in which people were concerned with their climates and environments was that they started to see uh, a degeneration in them. So, for instance, in the middle of the 17th century, um, there were um, papers uh, and books being written on pollution uh, in early modern England. Um, and um, John Evelyn, for instance, was asked to um, monitor the state of woodland uh, in England and to come up with a proposal for reforestation. And the interesting thing with that is that there was a clear economic motive behind that. Of course, there was a concern also with the state of the fleet and the availability of wood uh, for the Navy. Uh, but on the other hand, um, Evelyn uh, pointed out that vegetation was crucial for human well-being and for the well-being of the larger environment. Uh, and so there were ideas being uh, put forward as to how uh, vegetation could be protected and restored in England. And for the same reason, he also uh, discussed in one of his works, uh, Fumifugium, uh, the question of pollution in London uh, and how um, it could be um, fault, in a sense, uh, by creating a green belt around London. So very modern questions, in a sense, but asked in different contexts. What causes did people see for the decline of the environment in which they lived? That's a very good question. Uh, and the answer needs to be multiple because there were many ways uh, in which people in the period thought about the reasons uh, why the environment was uh, declining or degenerating. Um, one possible explanation was human activity. So if we go back to John Evelyn, um, his idea uh, was that um, human activities such as coal burning uh, or urbanization or the um, inclusion of tanneries in urban environments could really uh, affect the environment negatively. And it was also easier uh, to come up with solutions to these problems um, because they were considered to be uh, caused by human activity. Um, in a larger sense, however, um, there were also larger debates uh, as to why the earth was uh, degenerating, according to some. For instance, if you look at uh, Thomas Burnett at the end of the 17th century in England, uh, he had a theory according to which the earth was declining. Um, and that was bound up with um, debates um, on theology um, and the human fall, for instance. So in that case, there was a metaphysical answer to why certain changes in climate or environment uh, were visible. And the answer to how to uh, possibly uh, solve some of these problems was much more complex. In the latter case, when environmental decline was thought to have metaphysical or theological causes, was it thought that human activity could counter this? Yeah, so for some, there was a hope that um, technology and science could restore the Garden of Eden on Earth, in a sense. So if you look at the early Royal Society, for instance, in the second half of the 17th century, um, there were those who thought that human activity, um, if enlightened by uh, science, could really lead to a restoration of a lost harmony on Earth. Uh, according to others, there was nothing much that human activity could do to improve the current situation uh, and there was an apocalyptic sense um, that only um, the second coming could fix the current crisis in a sense. We have heard about some of your ongoing projects um, from a study of early modern climate theories to um, self-translation in Renaissance France. 
Do you have any other future, perhaps long-term projects? Well, I think this will keep me busy for the foreseeable future. Uh, one thing that I uh, would really love to do is to expand this work on self-translation and to take into account uh, other countries, not just France, but also Italy and England, um, possibly also the Netherlands and Spain. Um, again, because the practice of self-translation wasn't really limited to one specific context, but was uh, extremely widespread all across Europe uh, at the period. And so I would be interested in seeing whether there are Uh, differences or meaningful connections between the ways in which self-translation was uh, being practiced uh, in one geographical or linguistic context uh, and others, uh, particularly because we know that there was a lot of dialogue uh, between different national traditions, for instance, uh, debates on language that developed in Italy uh, really shaped the way in which um, the ways in which uh, authors thought about language in France uh, were changing in the 16th century. Uh, so I'm interested in looking more broadly at other geographical traditions uh, and also creating comparisons between them. But that's something that I wouldn't possibly um, do on my own. And so that probably is going to lead to a collaborative project of some sort. Thank you very much to Dr. Sarah Malietti for joining us on Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. Thank you. That's it for today. Thank you very much for tuning in. We will be back soon with another episode of Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast.